0: Thank you for coming this morning. Uh, Nothing like the name Gerda gets a bunch of people out in the cold on a Saturday morning. Um, We're really pleased to have this event today, to thank John for his partnership for now four times um, on this book, um, which we get to be the publisher. And um, for many hours, countless hours of hard work um, to tell Milwaukee's story of something we strive to do each day, and it's not easy. Because there is so many aspects to the story, but I think he does an amazing job of um, bringing it all into some concise words and, uh, and sharing that with the community. Um, I felt really privileged I got to read chapter 10 uh, ahead of time, and uh, I understood where he's coming from. John had told me, "Oh, no problem,, Maine. we'll update the book." And then a whole chapter later, he has enveloped. Um, Milwaukee back into one book. So thank you for being here. Now I introduce Mr. Gerda.
1: Thank you ma'am. Uh, so it's uh, a pleasure to be here. Uh, 19 years after I stood here for the last time when the first edition of the Making Milwaukee came out. So it was an afternoon on a Saturday and it was pro- probably about the same, same number of people here. Was anybody here back then in 1999? <laughs> Some of us are a little, little longer in tooth uh, since then. So the Society and I both had a commitment to keep this story uh, in, in print and up to date. And I want to talk a little bit about the challenges, but also sp- spend more time talking about the changes that have taken place in the years since 2000. Now, there's a condition that a lot of us have, and more of us will have, called presbyopia. How many of you have presbyopia? It means elderly eyes, is the, the literal translation from the Greek. And what it means is that our lenses harden as we age, so it's harder for us to focus on sort of near matter. Uh, the same root as Presbyterian. That means government by elders, so that's where the church name comes from. But presbyopia, the symptom you usually hear is that your arms aren't long enough, and you can't, can't get far enough away uh, to focus, so the, the usual solution is bifocals, or at least Walgreens cheaters, or to try to bring you know, this material a little bit within more range. Uh, there is a similar condition that afflicts historians who are trying to study the recent past. Things are simply too close to see clearly. When you're looking at, the, at almost yesterday, they're almost in your face, and they're in motion besides... So if you look way back in the distant past, the major events kind of stand out rather obligingly. The epochs and the eras almost announce themselves. There are no such signposts in the recent past, so nothing tells you kind of what the relative importance of all these recent events is. There is no LASIK surgery. Uh, there are no cheater glasses to help you discern what future generations will decide is dismissible as trivial and essentially essential as pivotal. So despite that presbyopia, and you can't avoid it, I think historians still have an obligation to kind of make those calls to try to make sense of the recent past to offer an informed perspective. So to be specific, in my case, I've updated making Milwaukee three times. It came out in 1999. Uh, we used to revise or refreshed editions in 2002, 2006, and now in 2018. I am committed, and the society is committed, to keeping that story fresh. And I don't want to stop at journalism, which is sometimes described as the first draft of history. I want to write at least the second draft, maybe the third draft of history. In previous updates to this book, what I would do basically is kind of tack on recent events to the end of the final chapter. So, you sort of this is kind of an update. Remember the old World Book encyclopedias? You buy the whole set and then you get the 1997-1998 branch. Very hard to assimilate. So, that last chapter was called Shifting Currents, 1967 Dash. And the stuff on the other side of the dash kept getting longer and longer as, as we added uh, things to the end of that final chapter. So tacking on was not possible this time in 2018, first of all because so much had happened and also because so much time had passed that it would have been more than 50 years in one chapter, so way out of scale with the rest of the book. So I had hoped to kind of do something a little less ambitious but ended up having to write a brand new chapter. And I chose to use the year 2000 as my new cutoff. So now the chapter is Into a New Millennium 2000 Dash. So We've got only 18 years on the far side of that dash. And the point was to try to identify major themes in the new millennium, things that have happened in Milwaukee since the year 2000. And I ended up kind of underlining four things that have been major developments in Milwaukee's recent history. Political tumult, a downtown redevelopment, the persistence of poverty, and the transformation of the economy. So a kind of political, physical, social, and economic, kind of trending, following all those trends. On the political side, the millennium began rather placidly. We had John Norquist, a Swedish Presbyterian, and a baby boomer who had been in the mayor's office since 1988. His signature was urban design, He was a devout new urbanist, tried to make a city that was human-scale, pedestrian-friendly. And his legacies include the Riverwalk, uh, Menominee Valley redevelopment, the Park East Clearance, which gave us Pfizer Forum and all the other things going on here, a little bit north and west. And you have the North Avenue Dam coming down as well. On the county level, Tom Amont had been in office since 1992. A courthouse insider who had been on the board for for 24 years and chairman of that board for for 16 years, and a member of that mythical 3M club, uh, Market High, Market U, and Market Law. So, kind of a secret cabal of people who are uh, informally associated but uh, certainly powerful in Milwaukee. So, both Norquist and Amon kept on getting elected. And it seemed we were in kind of that long-term Milwaukee pattern of very stable leadership. People kept on getting term after term after term. Then, in a matter of months, the wheels fell off. And you recall some of the events around the turn of the 20th century and the early 21st. You have December 2000, John Norquist had to admit an affair with a staff member, and that tarnished the rest of his mayoral tenure. I describe that as being torpedoed by his libido (laughs) in the book. Barely a year later, public outrage over a a shockingly generous pension plan on the county level really brought down county government. Seven board members were recalled, and Tom Amon faced 180,000 signatures on a recall petition and decided it was the better part of valor to step down. The election of Tom Barrett in 2004 kind of restored a sense of calm on the city level. On the county level, that pension scandal launched what you might describe as the Scott Walker phenomenon. He rode in after about nine years as a state assemblyman on the white horse of reform to become Milwaukee County Executive. After tangling with the county board and public employee unions for eight years, he moved on to Madison in 2010. And there he became a national figure for, first of all, gutting public employee unions and then winning a recall election in the backlash that followed. So he kind of won the same office twice. So that chapter has been certainly significant in Milwaukee's Milwaukee's and Wisconsin's recent history. That chapter will come to an end on January 7th when Tony Evers is uh, inaugurated. We were almost on press when the election was held in November, November 6th. And they had to do a little rewrite just before we made the plates. So we can say this history is ripped from the headlines. <laughs> this is as current as it could possibly be. And the very last addition to uh, the index was Ever's Pony. So this really is very much up to the moment. What lies ahead is anyone's guess, but it's pretty clear that the drama is not over. <laughs> See what's going on in Madison today. So the second theme is downtown redevelopment. And one number stands out in the history of uh, Milwaukee's downtown, the recent uh, physical area changes here. Since 2005, the amount of money spent on new construction, I'm talking about either in the ground or underway, not planned, not projected. So the money that's been spent here and is being spent is $5 billion in downtown Milwaukee since 2005. That is unprecedented by any measure inflation-adjusted, or any other. And two projects alone account for almost a billion dollars, that amount. You have right over here, the Pfizer Forum, 524 million, 250 from us, so the taxpayers. And the other side of downtown, you have the Northwestern Mutual Tower and Commons, that's 450 million dollars. One is a temple to sport, the other is a temple to business, but they both express a concrete faith in the future of Milwaukee and the future of downtown as well. A big shift in the years since 2000 has been how much energy is being expended on the west side of downtown. For a long time, it was much more oriented toward the east. So on the west side, besides Pfizer Forum, we've got the brewery, which really has transformed the shuttered Pabst Brewery that closed in 1996. Can you recall it? There were trees growing out of the gutters. Oh, the walls were just covered with graffiti. It has been completely revolutionary, revolutionized in terms of the... Physical development there by Joe Zilber and his, uh, his partners in the, that real estate program. You also have the Milwaukee Symphony building a new home, or actually a new old home in the old Warner Grand Theater, a, a wonderful Art Deco Palace from 1931. And you have the Grand Avenue Mall, which is being rechristened as just the Grand, so they're kind of shortening the name. And that will become a food court, beer hall, and offices and apartments as well. That was a catalyst for downtown redevelopment in 1982 when it opened, and now it's part of a catalytic wave that is transforming the west side of downtown. On both sides, east and west of the river, one of the major themes is housing, and this also surprised me. Between 2004 and 2016, nearly 10,000 new units were built in downtown Milwaukee. So it's it's a neighborhood, basically. They range from converted warehouses overlooking Lake Michigan, freeways, and uh, sleek towers overlooking the the larger cityscape. And a lot of that housing is concentrated in the Third Ward, uh, the the area down the Milwaukee River from, say, the Broadway Bridge. I call that Condo Canyon because it's pretty much lined with these higher-rise buildings. And the Third Ward, this is hard to believe, in 1980, the Third Ward's population was 74 people. And yeah, there were no kids there, you no, there were no kids going to school there. It's now over 2,500, you know, so there really has been a pretty radical transformation in the recent decades. So large parts of downtown are a neighborhood again for the first time in at least a century. And certainly downtown's the main event, but it's not just Milwaukee's downtown. There's a lot of energy in the surrounding ring. Uh, on the north side, you've got Brewer's Hill, is just a sparkling showcase for both new construction and restoration, preservation of old. That energy is kind of moving north to the Harambee neighborhood on the other side of North Avenue. On the near west side, the near west side partners, anchored by Market University, is doing a, a lot to kind of re-envision, reimagine that neighborhood. The Menominee Valley has been just completely transformed from an armpit to an asset. You recall when that was not the place you passed gladly. Red Star Yeast, kind of that fog of, you know, that odor kind of coming down if you had a wet day and the wind was from the south. A couple of years ago, I was leading a tour for the reunion classes of Shorewood and Whitefish Bay High Schools of 1955. Some alums had not been to Milwaukee for 30 or 40 years. they moved away to college and never come back. And I took them down to the valley. Some did not know where they were. They had no idea where they were in the landscape. So you got the Pottawan and the Casino, the Harley Davidson Museum, uh, Valley Fields, Marquette's athletic facilities, craft breweries, two or three down there, St. Paul Avenue is kind of emerging as kind of a design corridor. And you have clean industry on the west end of the valley, kind of reclaiming the valley's old uh, heritage. But you also have a renaturing, the Hank Aaron State Trail, part of a system that will take you out almost to Madison if, you, if you're a little patient. Three Bridges Park, among Milwaukee's newest. Native plantings, bioretention ponds, and the newest branch of the Urban Ecology Center on the south rim of the Menominee Valley there. They are using that valley as an outdoor classroom. They are looking for aquatic invertebrates in the Menominee River. The idea of doing that even 30 years ago would have been laughable. You know, so just the transformation there is certainly radical. On the south side you have again kind of this ring around downtown. Walker's Point is catching kind of the spillover energy from the third ward. Some developers call that the fifth ward although the Walker's Point is the more historically authentic name. On the farther south, southeast side, Bayview is hot and getting hotter and between Bayview and Walker's Point what's emerging is the harbor district and that's kind of the next Menominee Valley. So a lot of energy in all sections around downtown except east where the the lake itself kind of impedes development. So you have uh, certainly a lot of energy downtown, that's the yin. Uh, The yang in Milwaukee in the last uh, 20 years or so has been the persistence of poverty, especially on Milwaukee's near north side, and not just persistence but the growth of poverty in Milwaukee's inner city, just beyond the ring of that newer development, all that energy. The 1980s were the start of the deindustrialization that really had a catastrophic impact on Milwaukee's inner city. And that pattern has continued in the new millennium, and certainly it was aggravated by the Great Recession of 2008-2009. And the numbers are pretty striking. In 1970, 54% of Metro Milwaukee's black males worked in production jobs, 54%. By 2009, that ratio had plummeted to 15%, so just a catastrophic loss of jobs. That was among the steepest drops in all of the cities in the United States. Not surprisingly, as those jobs went away, more people than ever fell below the poverty line. In 2009, as the economy elsewhere began to recover, Milwaukee's poverty rate jumped from 11th in the nation to 4th, so certainly related. Very closely to that loss of jobs. And the city has become since then a fixture in the top 10. The recession had another impact on the inner city that was just as pernicious. There was a housing bubble, you might recall, in the run up to the 2008 collapse. And in the inner city, predatory lenders sold the dream of home ownership uh, with little or no money down, automated underwriting, and not even proof of employment. So they were really trying to get the Become income associated with all those transactions and didn't care about the actual ability of people they were selling to make those payments. So in the, as that bubble burst, as the economy collapsed, you had a foreclosure crisis that claimed 4 percent of the city of Milwaukee's housing stock, it's a lot of houses, a lot of units, and they were concentrated on Milwaukee's near north side. All those foreclosures too often led to board ups and those board ups too often led to teardowns. So in large sections of Milwaukee's near north side, lack of open space is not a problem. No, there is a surplus of open space in much of the inner city. And when you add those recent losses to decades of urban renewal, freeway construction, and general disinvestment, you have a phenomenon that you might call Detroitization. And look at a neighborhood like Lindsay Heights, which is squarely in the heart of Milwaukee's near north side. In the years since 1950, the population has gone from 39,000 to 8,600. So it's been pretty much hollowed out in many ways. It's important to note that many lives keep keep on going well. Nearly two-thirds of Milwaukee's African Americans do not live in poverty. And you'll find fresh paint and well tended flower beds on even the most depressed blocks. Also, important to note that Milwaukee is hardly alone. The same patterns are apparent in Chicago, Cleveland, St. Louis, Detroit, Buffalo, Philadelphia, and just a host of other, especially northern cities. But those qualifications offer us neither comfort nor an excuse, given the prevailing conditions, given the level of misery in the inner city. It's hardly surprising that we had that period of unrest, as they called it, in 2016 in Sherman Park. And what's galling is how little had changed since the civil disturbance of 1967. A lot of the same actors, the same pressures, were certainly very much present. So Milwaukee appears to be drifting with the rest of the entire country toward the reality that has been Latin America's reality for generations. You have a permanent underclass, a comfortable but wary upper class, and not much in between. So you have the divisions are certainly hardening. A final trend that stands out and is certainly related is the transformation of the local economy. Borders have collapsed, the world is flat, communication is instantaneous, and Milwaukee, kind of this traditional blue-collar stronghold, finds itself enmeshed in a new order of miles removed from the old days as the machine shop of the world. European peasants, including my ancestors, once came to America to better themselves by taking industrial jobs. In the 21st century, their Chinese counterparts have advanced by taking industrial jobs from America, often with help of American capital. Even the Nesco Roaster, which was a Milwaukee mainstay for generations and made lots and lots of church suppers suppers possible that moved offshore. It's been made in China since 2001. So there are still plenty of jobs in Milwaukee and their common thread is diversity. As the economy has become much more mixed, we've become a center of data processing for banks led by Medivante and Pfizer. We're corporate headquarters for giants ranging from Kohl's department store to Manpower Temporary Help just up the river here. The Mortgage Guarantee Insurance Corporation across the river. We have newer giants like Quad Graphics and GE Medical Systems. We have old mainstays like Northwestern Mutual that has 5,000 employees and just by its presence makes Milwaukee a financial center. And we have industrial giants that go back to the 19th century that have grown by going high tech. So I think especially of Johnson Controls and Allen Bradley, which is now Rockwell Automation. They used to make products that went click-clack. Now they make things that hum. So the whole sound has changed, and they don't make them here anymore. The employment is large, but it's all white-collar. So down there at Rockwell Automation on the south side, the parking lots structure still lots of cars in them, but they're not union, they're not not blue-collar workers. They're all engineers and software developers and marketers and executives. So certainly a paradigm shift. We also have new initiatives that are kind of taking root here in Milwaukee. Among the most uh, promising is the Water Council, which looked around and found that there were 150 companies that were somehow related to liquids, and it's kind of a a legacy of the brewing period here in Milwaukee, when you had lots of satellites that were making products that somehow moved or measured or treated, somehow treated things associated with beer. So you have giants there like Badger Meter, and it's part of a new strategy to try to make Milwaukee a global hub of water technologies. And certainly as the years pass, water is only going to get hotter and hotter and hotter. And Milwaukee has both the source of water here and the technology to use that to help other parts of the United States and the world uh, develop their water resources. So what all these enterprises have in common is an emphasis on knowledge and not physical strength, on information and not mechanical ability. And that is a paradigm shift, that is a change from the way things have been a generation or two ago. A strong back and a willing attitude are no longer enough to find a sustainable place in the American economy. At the same time, as the economy has transformed, manufacturing retains a lot of its old strength. We are still the home of Harley-Davidson. We are still the world capital of mining equipment, even if Karnasvager has become part of Komatsu and the Osiris area is now owned by Caterpillar. We are still a brewing capital. In fact, with the explosion of craft breweries, we now have in Metro Milwaukee 29 breweries and a dozen brew pubs, which is more producers than we've had at any time in the Milwaukee area's history. So not in terms of volume, but in terms of number of producers, we are at a record. And we have old standbys like Falk still making gear drives in the Menominee Valley, on land, the family purchased back in 1856 and Master Lock's still making padlocks up there on the old 30th, 30th Street Rail Corridor. It's not widely known, but for years, the Milwaukee metro area has had the second highest concentration of industrial jobs in America, urban America. So, the only city that has a larger concentration is San Jose, California. Electronics, kind of these clean factories, you know, hardly, hardly touches kind of the metal bending that Milwaukee has done uh, so we're number two, but the actual numbers certainly mark a tectonic shift. We have earned that runner-up rank for years with a ratio of just 14% of industrial of jobs being industrial. And that's a drop from 43% in 1950. So it really has been a cataclysmic drop, and it certainly argues that this is a global phenomenon. This is not something that is just local. No, this is transforming the entire world. So, presbyopia aside, those are four themes that I see as especially important in the new millennium: political tumult, uh, physical redevelopment, uh, continuing social problems, and an ongoing economic transformations. Historians are not and should not be futurists, but there are even larger trends emerging that I kind of covered in the last chapter. One is regionalization. When you go south on Interstate 94, try to visualize, you know, kind of that corridor between here and the state line. What do you see? A Foxconn, million square foot Amazon distribution facility, U uh, Uline, you know, big wear, a couple of big warehouses there as well as corporate. Uh, mega auto showrooms. You know, so you have these huge developments. The open spaces are filling in with commerce, industry, and housing. And that same pattern is apparent east of Chicago, all the way to South Bend, Indiana, and emerging all the way west from Milwaukee to Madison, and a bit more slowly between here and the Fox Valley. So what you have here is Milwaukee becoming one node in a megalopolis that is fast developing an identity of its own. How that will affect our identity and the identities of our neighbors is still very much an open question. And that's going to be a very important theme to watch, trend to watch in the 21st century. Another kind of deep time trend sort of reflects the role of climate change in this region. As the polar ice caps melt, as sea levels rise, what's going to happen to Boston, New York, Miami, Los Angeles, San Francisco? As they either disappear beneath the waves or are more vulnerable to storms, people are going to leave those coastal cities because they will have no choice, not in our lifetimes, but very probably in our children's and our grandchildren's. At the same time as the climate becomes more and more extreme, drought is likely to dry out the west and make even the existing development there unsustainable, where are they gonna go? They're gonna come to the middle. They're gonna come to the Great Lakes region which has no earthquakes, which has no hurricanes, which has a prodigal abundance of water. And if you look ahead, Chicago may well become the number one city in the United States, and Milwaukee will share in that growth and be part of the social economic heartland of the entire country. I suspect our descendants will find that a mixed blessing, but we may, if we go back ahead 100 years and come back, we may not recognize know, how things have developed in the time after our tenure here. So to close, as we look ahead, Milwaukee's challenges are obvious, but so are our assets, so are our advantages. Milwaukee is built at the human scale, it has all the resources of a much larger city, but has preserved the easy pace, even the intimacy of a much smaller community. It has a very unusual sweet spot between large and small. And I think that really is one of Milwaukee's identifying earmarks. And that sweet spot has produced uh, kind of amenities that few other urban studies can match. A manageable streetscape, abundant cultural opportunities, short commutes, fine restaurants, world-class festivals, world-class diversity, an assortment of neighbors to choose from and ready access to the natural world all around us. It is that abundance of assets that led me, as I did with every other previous edition, to end the book with the same word, and that is hope.